Hi, Chris. Hi, Farah. So when we agreed to do this podcast, I told you that as your producer, I'll be frank and direct with you. I need to know, how do you stop yourself reaching for the bullshit? The problem with whether you're a bullshitter or not is, is to an extent, uh, something that only other people can decide. So I, I hesitate to go on record and say, I'm definitely not a bullshitter. Well, one thing there's no room for bullshit on is our quick fire round. Today, we're looking at the world of sport. Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger? I think Alex Ferguson. Sport's about winning and he was a winner. Football or rugby? Rugby. I used to love football, but I think it's lost its soul. Ooh, controversial. Serena Williams or Billie Jean King? Ah, uh, that is a difficult one. I think Serena Williams... And I don't have any really good reasons other than I just love watching her play tennis. In the stadium or on the sofa? I mean, officially, because I'm like really cool and authentic and all those kind of things in the stadium. But in reality, secretly, I prefer the sofa. On the pitch, referees or VAR? On the pitch. Keep it real. Keep it authentic. And finally, Bradley Wiggins or Chris Hoy? Brad Wiggins. He's just, I know all the stuff has come out and I know he's, um, you know, let's say politely put polarising, but that 2012 when he won the Tour de France and he won that Olympic gold, that was just an absolutely iconic moment in time. Hello and welcome to this special live recording of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast powered by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst and my guest today is none other than the sporting legend Sir Clive Woodward. Uh, Clive, when I went onto your website, the homepage says, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, And I suspect you will be remembered as the World Cup winning head coach who led England's rugby team to World Cup glory in Australia in 2003, who amongst us can never forget. Not only was it the first time England won, but the first time any nation in the Northern Hemisphere won the Rugby World Cup, and still the only Northern Hemisphere nation. You then became Team GB's Director of Sport in the London Olympics in 2012, delivering Team GB's most successful Olympic Games in modern times, and you're now a sports and business consultant and founder of Hive Learning, an app which digitizes your coaching methods. Thank you for joining us this evening, Clive. Thanks, Chris, and thanks for that introduction. I've forgotten most of those things. None of the rest of us have, Clive. None of the rest of us have. In three words, describe your leadership style. Leadership, teamship, and partnership. If you could delete any word from the leadership jargon dictionary, what word would that be? Oh, that's easy. I hate the word. I'm going to reach out to you. Yeah. Which leader do you most admire, either present, past? Yeah, Alex Ferguson. Although I'm a big Chelsea fan, I hate Man United, but Ferguson was the best leader I've come across in sport by a long way. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? Be curious, but I think write things down because you think you may remember them, but you can't. So uh, I've always, I've even now got a pen, just in case I learn something from you, Chris. <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's unlikely, but, but let's see. It's flattering nevertheless. Uh, what's the best decision you've ever made? We went to live in Australia, I think, to go and work abroad. I, I went there when I was 29. So I think uh, I stayed there for five years. I had a two-year contract with Xerox. I stayed there five years. So just to work abroad was really excellent time of our life and I think it just makes you independent and I advise that to anybody if there's a chance of working abroad just do it and the worst decision you've ever made probably not to go to Australia about five years earlier (laughs) 
had a look at your website uh, before tonight's recording and it asks, and I mentioned this in the, in the introduction, how do you want to be remembered? I was presumptuous enough to answer that question for you, but, but how, how do you want to be remembered as a leader and a coach? When you're in, in leadership positions, you know, I, I love the word trust and respect. I always, I've always, you know, when people ask me about other leaders, you about Alex Ferguson, you kind of trust and respect. And I think the key thing to stress, I'm absolutely clear, but you, you, you don't get those names associated with you just because you happen to be the leader or the head coach or the chief executive. You get them just by the quality of your actions. And, you know, I always say to leaders, you, you, you are there to set the example. And it's, it's not rocket scientists. You've got to throw the kitchen sink at it. And certainly from a sporting point of view, you, I, I kind of still think as a player, you, you know the coaches who are re-delivering of what they're doing. You know the coaches who are maybe taking a few a few shortcuts. And you've had some incredible highlights so far. What was the highlight for you, whether it be a, a kind of a, a real sort of headline achievement or maybe some specific moment within that? What's the what's been the highlight? Well, I've been very lucky about because the, the Rugby World Cup win was, was huge because, you know, I, I didn't take the England job on to actually win the Rugby World Cup. I took that job on to try and make England the best team in the world, I mean, the number one ranked team in the world. But that one night in Sydney was just the kind of the absolutely icing on the cake. Everybody could see this was a very special team. As you said, no one's ever done that before from from our part of the world. So that was that would be the, the highlight. But I've I've always been pleased. So I moved on from rugby pretty quick. I kind of had a bit of fallout for a few one or two people at Twickenham after the World Cup and left. And I had a year of professional football. I love football. I had a year of professional football, which I love. I'm a fully qualified football coach. So even getting that qualification, I'm usually proud of. Then the Olympic Games. I was wasn't just um, London. I was in charge of the the sporting side of the team in. Beijing in 2008, Vancouver, the Winter Olympics, obviously London 2012. So huge highlights all, all through that. But what I've been kind of most proud of, I've been very looking, looking, and I'm not finished yet by a long way, is actually just, you know, moving on and not sort of, you know, it's great talking about World Cups and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I move on pretty quickly to find new challenges, new things to do. And yeah, I still love rugby. I enjoy, enjoy watching the game, but I've never, never kind of regretted moving on from, from the game of rugby. The World Cup in particular, obviously, such a such an iconic final. Not just the winning, but the way it was won. Did, are you the sort of person that that manages to find time to enjoy the moment? I think Johnny Wilkinson sort of famously said, didn't he, that he sort of enjoyed it for about two seconds and then just felt a sense of relief. Or were you able to just really, at the time, reflect on what you'd achieved and sit back and enjoy it? You probably reflect on it more sort of now, really, just talking to you. You look back on a lot of warm feelings at the time and the word use there was relief. To me, it was just a massive relief when that final whistle went. You know, it was just, thank goodness for that. And also, you, you know, you just know there's no second chance. That was never happen again. There's no next week or try again. That that was it. And if we'd not won that game, I haven't a clue how I would have turned out. I don't think probably very well, and I don't think any of us would have because we knew it was a chance of a lifetime. And that was that was pressure, but the, the pressure was great. You wouldn't swap it for anything. I loved the pressure of it. I remember, and I, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to compare the two, but I, but I remember when I first found myself in a in a leadership position, as in right at the the, the top of a business and. I knew what I wanted to achieve, but I don't think I had a very clear leadership philosophy of my own. I mean, when you first became the the head coach, did you have a clear plan for how you were going to go about it, or did you think did your thinking evolve as you went through? Do you, do you want the truth, or do you want... <laughs> yeah, we definitely want the truth. <laughs> I I didn't have a clue what I was doing. You know, I, I can I can look back now. I can say all the wonderful things. But when I say I didn't have a clue, of course I did, but the, 
when I got the England rugby job, the, I think the key thing everyone should, should understand, I had kind of two careers in business before that. I worked for Xerox, ranked Xerox for eight years, uh, including five in Australia. So, you know, and I was, I was uh, a, a graduate trainee and I was a sales director in Sydney. So I had a, a big corporate background. But probably most importantly, when we came back from Australia, uh, I set up my own small leasing and finance company based on the skills I learned with Xerox Finance. We were a small brokerage. So when I say small, it's about 10 people. They also ran for eight, eight years. So I had a big corporate background in terms of Xerox, graduate training and all that sort of stuff. But probably the most important thing was running your own company where you've got 10 people in the room. You know, and I really look back at that time running my own small finance company. Uh, that, that was the key skills I learned in terms of taking over the, the rugby team. I couldn't write it down or anything, but you just you just throw in the kitchen sink at it. You realize you've got to really listen to your people. You've got to make them engage with it. But, you know, we were small. We had no HR. We had 10 people sat in a room, and we took on some big, big guys and some of these big deals. I had a lot of fun. I learned so much in that eight yeah, learned more in that eight years than, than, than any, anything else. And so when you took the rugby team, um, there's no difference, you know. I think when I think about you know r- r- rugby and sport, uh, r- rugby and business, you know, you're delivering results through people. That's what leadership's about. You're not delivering it through yourself. You're delivering results through people. But when you think of it, that's the definition of a, of a rugby team, a football team, any business team. You just you just finding ways to really you know engage and empower your team and away away you go and. Uh, I, I kind of loved it. This was is interesting, you know. Whilst I love coaching England, I love running my own business. There was no, no greater buzz than being absolutely the guy in charge. Everything's on the line. You know, school fees, the house. You know, there's, there's no no one looking after you. But I learned from both. I, I was you know, I learned from a, a big corporate background, and I learned especially from running my own small company. And when I took over the rugby team, often the players would probably used to drive them nuts. I used to refer to business all the time with them about what we did and how we did things. You know, and I, I like to think they learned quite quite a bit. You know, I, I made no difference. This is a business, you know, and we're here to win, and that that's that's the game. What do you think are the big similarities and potentially differences between leadership in a sports context and leadership in a business context? I, I honestly don't think there is, Chris. I, I really really don't. The two key skills gets is just what I call relentless learning. You're always learning. There's no doubt. You look at these great football managers; they're always learning, always trying to find new things, new edges. They're not sitting there thinking, "Oh, great, we've we've, we've cracked it." Learning is everything, and and the key thing is if you get the learning done through your people. So it's not just yourself who is a relentless learner. You're you're, you're encouraging every single person in the, in the team. One of my favourite sayings in in the, in the rugby team: "There's no such thing as a dumb idea," you know, because sometimes a new player would come into the team. You know, even a young Johnny Wilkinson. When Johnny came into the England rugby team, he was 18, amazing young man, superstar player, but he was so shy. He was so quiet. He was almost intimidated by the more senior players. And then you got me asking him to stand up and speak in front of these players, and he just couldn't. But, but I, you know, I made, it, made it clear, you've got to get everybody involved. If you've got an idea, you say it, you stand up. It doesn't matter if you leave yourself open for some banter or ridicule. Let me decide whether it's a good or bad idea. What I pride myself on is listening and making sure all these players are really empowered to think, think about things. And then what I am thinking I'm quite good at, if I think that's a good idea that you've thought about, that's going to, you know, in sporting terms, make the boat go faster. I'll move heaven and earth to get it done. You have to do That's your job. So if this is going to make you a better team, win more gold medals, make the boat go faster, we will do it. We'll get it done. doesn't matter what it costs. It has to happen. I love listening to you talk about that because I know you and I have a shared sort of passion, if that's the right word, for the power of culture within, a, within an organisation to drive that organisation's success or, or, if you get it wrong, failure. Johnny Wilkins or whoever it is, you know, without you, he doesn't stand up and, and speak, does he? I mean, your role there is to create the culture and the environment to make that happen. And I think that's a critical role for leaders. 
when I'm thinking about this, you know, one of my favorite things, and I said this to players, great teams made of great individuals, and I repeat it. Great teams made of great individuals. My job with the rugby team is to make every individual player better. So I'm going to make Martin Johnson, Johnny Wilkinson, Lawrence Delalio, my job is to make them better at what they do. And if, if basically, if you get every individual, think of your business people, your, your sales people, your marketing people, your forklift truck driver, if you invest in them and you're going to try and make that individual better, you know, they will give it back to you in, in, in bucket loads. And I really do mean it. And they'll know whether you're bullshitting or not. So is this guy delivering? Is he making me a better player? You know, a sports team or a business team, you look around the room and suddenly you see all these amazing individuals who are superstar players. The team stuff, Chris, becomes quite easy to do. And that's how I've always worked, you know, and hence a rugby team is quite interesting because it's, it's so different than even a football team because there's so many different positions and different sizes. So I want to make every single player as best I possibly can. And that's a huge challenge because that keeps you awake at night. But when I run my business from, you know, the, the, from the, the secretary to the market, I'm trying to, you know, what, what have I got to do to make you better at your job? And if you do that, you, they, they won't forget that. And that's why I spoke before about trust and respect. I think you get that. If you, and if you do it, if you just talk about it and you talk a good game, you know, you, you, can't, you can't hide from these people. They know whether you're delivering or not. talk to you about the, the the rugby team all night but i also want to talk about the olympics you just compared to the rugby team to let's say a kind of a, a, a sort of a startup business almost to extend that analogy the olympic team was like running a kind of huge corporation i suppose in terms of scale what, what were the differences in terms of the leadership style you had to pursue i suppose uh, uh, as director of sport at the olympics yeah it was a very different job chris i mean in, in the rugby team i'm i'm the head coach the, the Olympic team, I was kind of overseeing the 26 sports, you know, so my, my job is to make sure these 26 sports really operated together. And there were 26 totally different businesses, you know, from British Cycling to Dave Brailsford, some amazing teams. And then, but the, the whole range of sports in terms of different cultures, different personality, different fundings, you know, British boxing, taekwondo, hockey. So you've got 26 totally different businesses. And almost silos, that's the best way I look at it. Very different. Some of these sports didn't even get on with each other, you know, because they were competing for funds from UK sport. Mm. So there wasn't a lot of love lost between some of these sports and people, which totally surprised me because I got the offer this job. I came out of the blue. I was about to become a football manager, and a guy called Colin Moynihan used to be the minister of sport, Lord Lord Moynihan, who I met a couple of times. I really like. He was got hold of me and he said, "Look, we've won the bid. We know you're in football, but we're going to create this new job, and it's not quite what you normally do because it's more of a." It's not an admin role because I'm overseeing these coaches. I had to go head to head with all these pretty aggressive, you know, winners like Brailsford and, and, and try and sort of create this team. Looking back, I'm really glad I did it. It was an amazing job uh, to actually see firsthand because it allowed me to go behind the scenes. You know, I could go behind the scenes at all these sports. You know, I have this thing about being a sponge or a rock and I'm a total sponge. I'll go anywhere if it means I can learn something. And just to sit in the back of team rooms and cycling athletics and just see the way different things are run. But also, you can see there was, a, there was, you know, when you, you know, when you look at these superstar athletes, you know, from from Bradley Wiggins to Victoria Pendleton to Johnny Wilkinson, Mark Johnson, they're actually the same. You, when when you, they're just doing different sports, they're incredibly driven and and they and they want to win. But also, what 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 became got really clear was, you know, it, it's not just one way. They don't, don't just sit there and listen to the coaches. They they work with the coach. They question the coach, and their knowledge of their sports. 
like you know, I talk about relentless learning before. It was only then that I started to write things down and try and work out what on earth I had done with the rugby team. Because until then, as you say, I was just throwing everything at it. But then I was able to actually see why we were successful and what the comparisons were with some Olympic sports that were successful and some of the sports that weren't so successful. But it's a business. It was back to the delivering results through people. But it was a great job, but I was more in an administration role. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't plain sailing. I was really surprised at the animosity between some of these sports because you kind of watch on TV, like we've all done, the Olympic Games, amazing TV. You see Team GB, even all in the nice tracksuits and walking around. Behind the scenes, it's not quite like that. There's a lot of angst, a lot of tensions, a lot of personalities, a lot of blow-ups. And my job was to make sure that didn't happen, basically. And, and I mean, is that where you develop your concept of teamship? I mean, do you, do you want us to talk a bit about that? No, the teamship came from a small business. You know, I, I kind of read a lot of, for every one sports book I read, I read 10 business books. But I've never read about teamship. And all, all teamship is, it's very, very simple. But is if, if I, I try and make it as simple as possible, if I'm using my own small company, I'm the leader of the team. I've got 10 people in my team. That have been too dramatic. I wanted the team to discuss you know, what we're going to do about certain things, what our standards are going to be, our behaviours and all this sort of stuff. And literally, I wouldn't be in the room. And I'd ask one of the team to, you know, have a chat about it all, the whole thing and kind of report back to me and say, what do you think? And then it can become what I call a teamship role if you get 100% agreement from the team. But most important, the leader also agrees. So if the team comes back with an idea, this is what we want to do, we all agree this is the way to do this. If you don't like it, you still back it back. So it's not democracy, you're not giving any, any power away. But it's what I said before, you actually would be you're showing your team that I am listening to you, I do I do respect and understand you. You know, fundamentally I still think as a player, I could still remember sitting there as a rugby player, thinking, God, if I was in doing this job, I'd be doing it differently than this. So it's just empowering your, your team. I call it teamship. And in the England rugby team, we literally had hundreds of teamship rules. Hundreds. Obviously some to do with playing the game, but most is about our behaviours. My favourite one was time. I think time says more about an individual or team of people than anything I think of punctuality you know i'm never late ever there have to be a serious incident for me not to be on time for somebody but you know so i sat down with the team one day i went through all my definition of punctuality at starting on time finishing all this sort of stuff so i want to know your definition so i literally left the room and this is what they're, they're you know, this is why they were so good you know martin johnson especially he got this so i came back in and john gave me a bit of paper and he said you know we get this our definition of time will be 10 minutes early so if you call a meeting tonight to start at seven o'clock uh, we'll be in the, all the room by 6.50. So you, the leader, read this. You're going to accept this. And 10 minutes early is totally possible in a sporting team. It's not, it's not, it's not in a business in, in that sense. So you sign off on it. And then you kind of name it. We named it, named it Lombardi time. Our American football coach called Vince Lombardi. And I promise you, anybody listening to this call, if you ever meet any rugby player who played under me, just go Lombardi time and they'll go 10 minutes early. And even now I meet players, everyone's 10 minutes early and they laugh. So your teamship will create your culture. But the most important thing... If I'd gone to the team and go, right, here's the rules, 10 minutes early, they'd all just fold their arms and go, this is all bullshit. Because you get them to discuss it, them to decide it, and also most importantly, them to agree it. They, they take ownership of it, and they get hugely proud of it. And if anybody was late, it doesn't need me to tell them, that the team would call it out. If you want to win, you can have these amazing teamship rules. And what it allows you to, you know, if you think what's happening today in today's world with you know, all that's going on in Black Lives Matter, what, what teamship allows you to get those things out on the table, get them discussed. Don't hide behind anything. And I think if people did that a lot more often and encourage your team, if there's anything you think we should be doing better, 
or you're not happy with, get it out of the table, get it out of the table, create a team should all around it. And I've never read about it in any book, but it's got to be driven by the leader of the, of the actual team. The leader it almost instigates that culture, I suppose. But as I understand it, the, the team almost, I'm trying to avoid using the word police because that's too uh, hard, but the team the team self-enforces those rules, right? I mean, it's not for you to, to sort of say, hang on, I'm going to tell you off. It's that they, they hold themselves to those rules that they themselves have set. What, what happens is we're trying to be the best team in the world. And literally, no one's ever late. No one's ever late. It didn't need policing. And this isn't a contract. This is a firm shake of hands between this and how we're going to operate. I've agreed to do this. That's how we're going to work. You know, obviously, some of these can arrive late. Things can happen. But if somebody then knowingly arrives late, you've got a major problem. When you know you've really cracked it, when your team comes to you, so let's discuss this, can we discuss this, can we discuss this? And then you go on from, and it never stops, you're always adding something, you're always tweaking them, you're always building on them. But that, that England rugby team that won, the way they operated off the field of play was just the, the best I've ever seen in any business or in any sport. And then you can move it on to the field of play, where you start to discuss, you know, what are we going to do from here, here, and here? Because you've got these brains, and I'm just saying we need to use these brains. These, 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 just because they play doesn't mean they're not clever, they're incredibly bright and they understand the game they want to win. So it's just called teamship, and you know I, I wouldn't know any other way of working with any team of people. I, I couldn't. You know, I just know how to do it. If I'm running, you know, a golf club amateur committee, that's how I do it. Same thing. We need to have a clear way of working that we're all happy with. And but if it's nine out of ten people say yes, we'll do it this way, and one says no, it cannot become a teamship rule because that player, that person might be right. That could be the killer idea. It's not just a majority mm-hmm. rules. You've got to have every single person. That's what we're going to do. And there'll come a stage where you, as the leader, go. Okay, we're just going to get on with this now. Even if I'm not quite there, we'll, we'll try it for a couple of months and see how we get on with this because you can change it. So teamship is a style of leadership. It's not a, a one-off sort of project. So it's a style of leadership where you really are engaging with your team and, and listening. I, I, I love, in a way, fitting these two, these two big concepts we've talked about together, this idea of creating an environment where everybody gets to speak. You talked about the Johnny Wilkinson example. You know, you're creating the environment where he or she, whoever, whatever the context is, is able to say whatever's on their mind, a worry, a concern, an idea, and at the same time then having, an, having a framework for a discussion and, and a decision with the group as to whether that is something they're going to embrace and, and, and work with. It's kind of two sides of the same coin in some ways. To be very clear, in, in the team room, we had some humdingers. Just because you kind of win a World Cup, everyone seems to think it's something that's wonderful. It's, it, it wasn't. Sometimes it got really... Uh, quite tasty in there, if you know what I mean, because we wanted to win. And some and some big guys. <laughs> yeah, some big guys. But it all kicked off at times. But the team shit rule was there's nothing wrong with disagreeing in the team room. But when you know but but quite simply the team shit rule when we walk out that door, we all walk out the door holding hands. There's nothing comes out of that team room. But we want disagreement, we want questions, we want arguments, we want people calling people out. That's what high performing teams do. But no one ever fell out. There was never, not quite any blood on the carpet, but we had a few, few moments where you have got to go, guys, calm down, calm down. You know, and especially with some of the, looking at some of the games we lost, you know, we did some of the analysis on the, on the TV. You know, someone said, what were you doing? <laughs> you shouldn't have said that to him. So we, even, even that was team shit rules. That, and, and the team room was a magic place. We had this, you know, I put a lot of stall on the team room, which is it's kind of more than a boardroom, and we made it, a place when when that door was shut, right? It wasn't there for a chat, but what what it has it was quite noisy because I wanted them coming in with thoughts and ideas, and I would you know it wasn't me delegating. I would just say, "What do you think? What do you think?" So you get opinions through. Then 
you know, then you got the coaches who are no angels either. You know, Andy Robinson and Phil Lard and these guys, they were all winding yeah. up as well. So it became quite a hostile place at times, but it was, you wouldn't swap it for the world. You know, but also my, my little leasing company, every, every now and then it all kicked off in that because we something did, we didn't do it right or, or whatever. And, you know, we had to say, that's where I learned it from. I really learned teamship from that small company. And, you know, we may kick off and say things in that room, but we just walk outside the door, high five each other and get on with it. You know, we, we, we set our piece now and leave it on the way behind was another one of my favorite. You know, it's done now. It's going to move on, move out the door, let's get on with it. I, I, I always, I definitely think that with effective teams, you, you have to be able to disagree and disagree is a polite way of putting it, but without falling out, you know, you need to be able to have a real old proper row. And then at the end of it, say, let's go for, you know, we're both coming, we're both arguing about this because we deeply care. Let's get it out. Let's get, let's get it said and then let's go for a pint or, or, or whatever it is you, you want to do afterwards. Because I think if you don't, that's when you get to politics, schisms, people don't say their things that they feel, they, they be tension build up I've spoken to you know, I spoke to Alex Ferguson about this spoke to Toto Wolf about this and they say the same thing they, we almost laugh everyone thinks because you win there's this beautiful thing and actually it isn't that beautiful you know and uh, yeah. but that's why they all laugh and they, but they love it I love it I loved it I loved the kind of confrontation within the team room because we wanted to win we did want to win and we're trying to create these amazing standards and um, I think, and actually, the players loved it. They absolutely loved it, and, they, and the kind of the humour also was all, all, all part of it. But you know, that's what high-performing teams do. Sometimes it's not this wonderful, wonderful place. That's not the real world. You know, things do go wrong. You have you have big losses, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So it, it, it can happen, and and you and you find out a lot about yourself in those situations as well. You talked earlier about about the the, the best you know the, the the great teams are made up of great individuals and and you you, you I've heard you talk before about the the DNA of a champion that that just talent alone isn't enough. What makes a champion if not just talent? Clearly, a champion you've got to have talent. You know, you can't take someone off the street and put him into a racing car or an England scrum or wherever. But once you've got talent, if you really want to try and leverage your, your talent, the, the the biggest thing I, I come back to is this. Your ability to learn and really take ownership of your, your own program. Yes, you want to work with your coach and do things like that. You should listen to your coaches. But you know, I, I love this term, relentless learning, where you're actually, and this is what I encourage your players to do. I'm, I'm encouraging them to go out and study, find out, come back to me. What do you think? How can we do this? How can we do do that? And that, that's what that's what champions do. I mean, Steve Redgrave, when he was 16, was was nowhere. He's now the most successful Olympic athlete. He was 16 years old. You know, he hardly could get in a boat. But he went on to be convinced by his sheer knowledge of what to do, how to do it, both physically, mentally, and he took really ownership of his own program. And that's why I see a lot of these champion athletes, you know, they, they their knowledge of what they do is amazing. You know, and then on top of that, you know, I use the word attitude. I like the word attitude, Chris. I think attitude's a great word. But I don't think people are born with attitude. I think you can coach attitude. So I break attitude down into 10 areas. And each of these 10 areas, there's a whole presentation on each one of them, but it allows me to measure attitude. And it is things like punctuality, it's, it's been like obsession and these, these sort of words. But it adds up to he, has he or she got the right attitude. So if you get somebody 
who's relentless learner, you've got the right attitude and they've got talent, you can take him in, in, anywhere. I'd, I'd like to talk to you briefly about innovation as well. We, we, well, we're hopefully coming to the end of a very, very strange time in all of our lives and certainly in, in business, that's going to mean a huge amount of change and I think some some creative destruction probably as well. And I think we're going we're gonna to see as a consequence that a huge amount of innovation in all sorts of parts of our, our, our business lives, all aspects of our lives. What role is innovation, conscious innovation played in your uh, sort of leadership journey and do you see yourself as an innovator as a leader no not bad. I've never even thought about it to be fair what, what, what I've always believed in and this probably came from my Xerox background whoever wins in IT tends to win certainly in the sporting world when I became the, 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 rugby, the rugby coach that was the first time I was a full time professional coach I was you know we had no excuses and I went massive on the IT side massive but what we did was and at the time probably you know, when I first got the rugby team, less than 5% of the team had a clue how to use a laptop computer. I mean, the players from Leicester, my, my club, couldn't spell laptop computer. So this was going to be quite quite challenging. But I wasn't doing it to be a geek or, you know, because, you know, some of the players go, what are you, what are you doing? You know, and the, and the press you know, had a field day, you know, because all these tough-nut players are walking into the hotel with their laptop computers. I mean, I can see some headlines now. There's one, one guy, what, is it, what on earth is he doing? What has what a laptop computer got to do with playing rugby? Why is he not giving them all raw meat, was his, was his headline. And I came out at the time, some of the players, because they couldn't use this stuff. But, but quite simply, when we explained to them why we're doing this, and also, you know, they were quite interested in the technology side of things, and we brought the very best trainers in. But when we showed them some of the software programs available, the key was getting them to use the software to analyse their own performance, whether it's on the field of play or off the field of play. And that at the time was just completely groundbreaking. People thought I was start raving bonkers. But there, you know, and there were one or two casualties. This wasn't a kind of a nice to do thing. This was I mean, this was a line in the sand. Unless you're going to take technology seriously. And I just think today, you know, so many people also, you know, when I when I work with some senior executives, it's it's amazing, you know, that they, they kind of um, usually want to show me some sort of software or data to start with. I'm always going to ask the first question, who uses this? Who uses this? And almost nine times out of ten, it becomes a badge of honour. Oh, that's not my job anymore. I'm too senior to do all this. You know, we've got these bright young things from Oxford and Cambridge, these mm-hmm. analysts down here. Massive mistake. You, you've already gone away from the technology world. The whole thing technology is using your experience to make sure you make the right decisions based on what you're actually seeing. So, you know, if that's what you call innovation, it wasn't, to me, it was just common sense. You know, I wasn't kind of thinking I was going to be an innovator, but we weren't scared of trying new, new things. But technology's absolutely key it's key today everything we're doing is, even around the coronavirus it all comes back to technology and who can move quickest and who can actually adapt quickly to, what, to what's going on but I guess my Xerox background my business background I had no fear of technology because that's that was my that was my job I was there to sell technology from a very young age but one of your businesses now is a, is a technology business isn't it with, with Hive as your kind of coaching coaching tool do you want to talk a little bit about that and tell us what the ambition of that is Basically, what, what, what we did was it just digitized what I did longhand as a rugby coach. Because when, when we first started, I, I used this process when I kind of break down the game and we capture knowledge and information. But when we first started, I was capturing all this information just longhand. We had boxes and boxes of stuff. So it became really clear to me that there was an the opportunity. So you just start to capture information. And, and this is how I coach people. If I'm going to work with you, Chris, I want you to almost imagine that we're going to write a book about what you do. So the first thing, what are your chapters? How do you break down what you actually do? Then once you've got your chapters, we're going to start to capture knowledge and information. I mean, really capture it. So this is where this thing comes in, in hand. So you're capturing all this stuff. You start to really study it. And this is what I call discover. 
then you, you, you start to catch all this information about the you know stuff in one of the chapters. And then I use the word, so it's actually called 3D learning. So the first is discover. So you're getting all the information about this thing. You never stop learning, you're always discovering, discovering, discovering. Then the second D in 3D learning is what I call distill. Uh, so I have all this knowledge, you can try and distill it down to just a few key points. So I have all this amazing stuff. If we do these six things really well, the boat will go faster, whatever you want to say it. Then the third D in 3D learning is what I call do. So once you know your key points, your your you distill them down to key points. How do we practice this? How do we do this? Everything else. So your coaching will be creating your chapters, capturing knowledge and information, and then discover, distill, do. And it can all be done on this thing now, so it's with you all, all the time. And show other people. And we're just trying to find out. It's all about knowledge. And so this is what the, the whole hive learning is about. How important has failure been in your journey, Clive? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an, an occupational hazard, I guess, as a sports coach. Well, I don't know anybody who's been successful who hasn't failed. I mean, it's failing is part of life. I mean, I think I'm probably the few coaches ever talked about failure before we failed. We used to have meetings in the team room about, okay, if we lose this game, what are we going to do? There's no point losing a game of rugby and then Saturday afternoon, five o'clock in the changing room, all right, how are we going to handle this? What are we going to do? So we used to talk about failure. And, and the key thing is planning for it. So when you do fail, you know how to handle it and handle it quickly. So it's not this massive, big, big fallout. So, and, and I think I learned this very much from my, from my business. Like put it in the business thing. What, what, happened, what happens in business, and I was totally guilty of this to start with, with my own small leasing companies. That, you know, what happens when you, without being too glib, what happens when you win the big deal? You know, everyone down the pub, Friday night, big success. Wow, we've won the big deal. Massive overreaction. Then what happens when you lose the big deal? Everyone in Monday morning, 8 o'clock, massive, what happened, big overreaction. What I learned to do was flip that. So in other words, when you lose the big deal, go down the pub, don't overreact. When you win the big deal, everyone in, 8 o'clock Monday morning, why do we win? What are the key points? How can we do it even better? You know, and you hear these terms, you know, like marginal gains and under things 1% better. That's all that is. So yes, you can learn from failure, but I don't think people learn, Chris, from success anywhere near as enough as they should do. So yes, focus on both, but I would wait far more heavily really studying why you won, and I mean really studying and not just taking it for granted that you may have won for these, really studying and trying to find out and how could we do it better next time. If we're going to do it again, could we do it even better? You think of a game of rugby, you could win, win a game of rugby by playing awful. They call it success from setbacks. And I've spoken to sports coaches and they go, you couldn't possibly speak to your team about failing. Well, you can. Because if you think, you start thinking the ramifications of failure, you don't want to fail. And it's, it can become quite motivating, cracky. If we fail, this is what we're going to have to go through. So let's just part that now. We know what's going to happen if we do lose, but let's now focus on trying to win this thing. But no one knows, I've never known any sports coach talk about failure. Fascinating. So we've got lots of questions. A question about uh, the person you cited right at the start, Alex Ferguson. How much should leaders use anger? <laughs> Alex Ferguson could famously be furious. Jose Mourinho seems frequently unhappy. <laughs> Shouldn't leaders be optimistic and caring? Alex Ferguson, for 95% of his time, I think <laughs> would be caring and all that sort of stuff. But every now and then, you have to. I, I, I did it once in a rugby team where I absolutely lost it in the changing room lost it completely you know it, it kind of worked because they'd never seen me like that before because it, I needed to shock them massively shock them and not go through what we normally would do which was kind of this very professional half-time routine and do all this sort of stuff that was it was a, the classic teacup hairdryer hair, hair moment and you can't do it all the time they, they get fed up with it they just laugh at you but if, if when it's needed you have to be emotional every now and then 
but it's just getting the balance right. And I, I, I didn't ever plan to do it. Just every now and then, you've got to do it as a, as a coach. And there's been some famous moments with Ferguson where I think he cut Beckham's lip once and checked a boot mm. on him or something. Which, which when you when, you, when you're in our position, you just sort of smile and says, "Yeah, I can relate to that." He was just so mad at him, and he didn't mean to throw it at him, but he just threw it to him and him, I think. But he told me about that, and he obviously didn't aim at it. It was just an accident, but he did chuck something. But yeah, I think that's good. And same in business. Every now and then. You've got to be, be come across that this is you're not happy with things, and but you've just got to in business be a little bit more clear in your thinking so you don't actually say something you, that you may really really regret in terms of up, up, upsetting somebody. Uh, question from Andrew Wilson: What are your favourite questions to ask of those who you lead? Yeah, I just ask them in terms of their learning. Show me what you learned today. Show me what you what you're doing. Can they show me anything? Show me their history. And if they can't, we've got to start quickly because if it's all just stuck in your head, the chance that will be stuck in your head and then you'll keep forgetting it. So I just want to know, you know what they do on a regular basis to capture their own learnings, capture their expertise, and how can I help improve that? Because I think we can do it better if we, if we work through that 3D learning process and get it and the people understanding that. And it's almost like I want to capture your IP I want to make it better. I want to capture it, study it. How could we? How could we make you better? At what you actually do. So that's my favorite, favorite question in a roundabout way. And and the final question from Francis Cody. You've talked a lot about this during the past hour, so I think I can guess the answer. But do we need to employ more people in corporations who've run their own small businesses? Absolutely. I wouldn't say corporations. I would say governments. I would say people who are reduced to making decisions haven't had a big corporation behind them you know they really put it on the line because they're they're the people i really admire the, the small business mindset you know the, the best business leaders i i know have all started off in their own companies they've learned and you know, they've learned the good lessons bad lessons they've learned how to win they learn how to fail which is really important but they're to make decisions and i, I think sometimes top people in companies if they've, they've got there without ever having to really make a decision because they've always had the backing of a big corporation behind them. Same in government. Like, what have they really done when you really get against the wall like we are at the moment? What have they really done to prove they've got the kind of the, the mindset, the bottle, the spine to kind of get through this? Because it's a business. That's what it is. Thank you very much, Clive, for, for your time, for being with us and for the absolutely fascinating chat. I've learned loads. I've thoroughly enjoyed it uh, and I hope you have too. And for those of you who are inspired by Clive's leadership style and would like to know more, he's doing a masterclass with Intelligence Squared on how to lead in a time of crisis. You can find out more details and book on to his masterclass by clicking the link in the podcast description. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.